Today, Dave Wirtz invites you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Here's the setting. When God finished revealing His law to Israel at Mount Sinai, He faced the formidable task of getting a nation of two million moving toward the Promised Land. They were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, but they needed to get going and possess the Promised Land. How did God motivate them? How did He organize the nation? As we begin our study with Dave titled, Break Camp and Get Going, I want you to picture one of the kids in his church in a sleeping bag up on the stage in front of the audience. Dave uses some rather unusual means to get across a point. Have you ever gone camping where it's cold? Okay, get way underneath. I want you to imagine we're getting up real, real early in the morning, okay? And your mom comes and says, hey, it's time to get up. And you stick your hand out. Stick your hand out a little bit there. And boy, it's freezing. What are you going to do? That's right. That's right. She's going to come to you again. About ten minutes, she's going to come to you again and say, hey, you need to get up. What are you going to do? And what are you going to do? Because it's real, real cold outside. And boy, there's a long, long trail ahead. What are you going to do? Right back in. Okay. You think it's going to be hard to get you going on this cold, frosty morning and get going for that hike? You think it is? Okay. You didn't say it loud enough. Yeah. All right. Come on out. You Come on out. Let's give him a hand. What we're going to be talking about today is exactly that. God has two million people that are like uh, the Fletcher family getting ready to go camping. And those two million people have been at Mount Sinai and they've heard the law of the Lord. And the Lord has told them it's now time to move. And you moms, especially because that task of getting everyone moving usually comes on the mom, you know what it's like to try to get those kids up early, especially when it's cold outside, and get them moving. Well, God has the task of trying to get two million people to break camp and to get moving. And what we're going to find out in today's passage, we open our Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to ask ourselves the question, where are we headed? Where are we going? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 as we begin our text today. We find Moses poised on the edge of the Jordan River up in the plains of Moab. As we begin reading, we have the Lord talking about a command to get up and break camp and move. You notice it says in verse 6, The Lord our God said to us, so the Lord himself is speaking at Horeb and he said, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. That's this idea of the need to break camp. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah and the mountains and the westward foothills and the Gev and along the coast of the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in, take possession of that land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. What the Lord presents in these verses is not only the command to go, but he also tells the people that they have received a promise. If you turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, there's a stirring story that the writer of Deuteronomy is referring to. It's a story dealing with Abraham and the Lord God, Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we have the evening coming upon Abraham and this discourse that he had with the Lord God. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, 
Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. When was that? When did that take place? Well, obviously it was when the children of Israel were, went down into Egypt at the end of this book of Genesis, and Joseph was able to preserve the nation, but as the years began to unfold, you know the story well, the children of Israel became enslaved. 400 years went by. And then God said, according to this text, that the iniquity of the Amorites was fulfilled. You look at verse 15 and 16. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace. In other words, Abraham would die in peace and he would be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So what Abraham was able to predict, because he was a prophet, he was able to look down in the history of his people. And he was able to picture the beginning of a nation. And he was able to picture their slavery in Egypt, assuring the children of Israel that their time in Egypt was under God's control. And then he pictured, he predicted, that those people would come out into a land and they will possess the land, a land that didn't belong to them at this time. It belonged to one of the peoples that owned the land were the Amorites. And then the, this whole agreement was sealed in a very powerful way in verse 17. When the sun had completely set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And notice the dimensions. From the river of Egypt to the great river, that is the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Katamanites, Hittites, and all the other ites that possess this land. What I want you to see is that the dimensions of the land that were promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 are the dimensions of the land that are presented in Deuteronomy chapter 1. The history that was predicted way back 400 years before the time of our text in Deuteronomy, that history where the children of Israel would become slaves and then they would be delivered was predicted by the founder of their nation, Father Abraham. Most importantly of it all, this flaming pot represents the Lord God. What Abraham had done earlier in that day is he had taken some animals and cut them in half. And ordinarily in the ancient Near East, when an agreement was made like that, both parties that were signing on the dotted line would walk through those animals. And they would be saying to one another as they walked through the animals, if you don't keep your side of the bargain, that's what's going to happen to you. And the other person would say, if you don't keep your side of the bargain, that bargain that's what's going to happen to you. And it was a very formal, in some ways a very gruesome ceremony. The incredible thing about Genesis chapter 15 that is in Genesis 15, God walks through the slain animals alone. And what he's telling Abram is that the fulfillment of this promise for you to own and possess the land of Canaan is dependent upon my gracious mercy. It's dependent upon the fact that my initiative and my choice of love and what we have in the book of Deuteronomy is the faithfulness of God. Now those 400 years have taken place. As we open up, up the pages of the beginning of Deuteronomy, we find the nation has now become, 
the promise that God made to Abraham that his people would become a great nation has now become a reality. Later on in our passage, we're going to find out that they become like the stars of the heaven in numbers, so many that Abram can't even bear the burden of the people alone. And they're now ready to march. Now the big issue in the book of Deuteronomy is going to be is to prepare for entering that land. And as we move into the book of Joshua, the issue will become, will they go in and fully possess the land? What in the world does any of this and all of this have to do with us as we live today. In other words, the children of Israel have the dimensions of their land. By the way, it's the, from the Euphrates to the Wadi of Egypt, which is a small dry riverbed uh, before you get into the Sinai desert area, before you get to Egypt, kind of in the Gaza Strip. Um, Israel has never in all of their history ever possessed that land. I believe that ultimately the, the prophets in the book of Revelation tell us about an ultimate time an ultimate time when the world will be shaken and finally the Messiah will return and Israel will be given fully their title deed and take possession of the land. But their dependence, their, their entrance into that land and their full possession of the land is dependence upon their heart attitude. They must turn to the Lord. And today I think we need to be very, very careful of saying, well, this means that that Israel today in the land should be able to possess Lebanon. They should be able to possess Syria. Right now, Israel is in their land, but they're not in their land looking to their Messiah, depending upon Him. In many ways, they're like one of all the other people of nations, the family of nations. They must behave justly. And the United States has played a very important role in trying to bring about justice. But I do want you to know that I believe with all my heart that there will come a day when the Lord God of heaven, because Israel has responded to the Son of David, to Jesus Christ, there will come a day when the full dimensions of that land will belong to them. And never in their history has that taken place because never in their history have they completely and fully dedicated themselves to the Messiah. When the Messiah did come, it says he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But this text assures us that there's going to come a day when Israel will fully possess their land. You say, Dave, that's future and it's past. What does it have to do with me? Well, Israel is poised in an in-between transition time. They have been redeemed from Egypt. They have been set free from slavery to the Egyptian taskmaster. They are now on a march towards the promised land, but they're not in the promised land yet. As we think of the way the New Testament applies this kind of imagery, the New Testament talks about a land that you have the title deed to. The New Testament talks about a journey that we're making. The New Testament talks about a slavery that we've been delivered from. Let's look at some passages that talk about the land that we have the title deed. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, 20 through 21. And here we read some amazing verses about the title deed that we have. It says in verse 20 of chapter 3 of Philippians, but our citizenship, where is it? Tell me. It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring, ever, bring everything under his control will transform your lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Turn over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Once again, talks about the title deed that we have to a heavenly land. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. And it pictures you as a group of believers already in possession of this land. Already, in fact, in Hebrews, pictures you already standing in the presence of heaven, taking possession of this heavenly inheritance. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. What's it like as you look around this heavenly city that you possess? You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels, these powerful servants of the Lord, and they're there in joyful assembly. Whenever you go to church and you sing with a group of believers, you're joining with millions, myriads upon myriads of angels that are singing with you and rejoicing with you. And what we do here on earth is just a reflection of what we're one day going to be doing forever. You have come to the church, the gathering of the firstborn. The firstborn is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have come to the gathering of the firstborn, those who belong to Christ, and their names are written where? Where is your name written? It's written in heaven. That's your title deed. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men who have already been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, I just described to you that God's Old Testament people could rely upon a promise that God made to Abraham. They could rely upon the slain animals, the testimony of God, that He would fulfill the physical promise to ultimately give the land of Israel from the river of Egypt to the mighty river of the Euphrates to God's earthly people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, I want you to think with me. In the New Testament, God hasn't jettisoned the ultimate fulfillment of that old promise but he has developed the promise in a deeper way, in a much broader scope. And that's where you and I come in. You see, we have been given the title deed not to a piece of real estate nestled at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. We have received the title deed to heaven. What's the covenant that God has made with us? What's the blood that's been shed? The book of Hebrews chapter 12 said, we have a better covenant. Because our covenant is not sealed with the blood of animals, but it's sealed with the fact that God gave His Son and He shed His blood for us. The whole point of when we studied the book of Hebrews together was to understand the greater dimensions, the greater promises. Better is the key word of the book of Hebrews. And so we think of the children of Israel poised on the edge of entering the promised land. I want you to enter into their history. I want you to learn lessons from their history. I want you to realize that on a historical level, and as we look into the future of planet Earth, one day that history, that full possession of the land, will become true for them. But in many ways you have bigger promises and greater promises. The children of Israel had been delivered from the land of Egypt. They were set free but they were not in the promised land. 
There was a march that needed to be made. There was a journey that needed to be accomplished. There were struggles, there were tests that needed to be fulfilled. And that's the issue that I want you to think about in application. As I think about how does this text apply to me? I think the Lord is trying to give us a call to get going. Wake up. Get out of your sleeping bed. I think for a lot of us as believers that Christianity has become like the warm sleeping bag. And we put our hand out there and it's cold. It's uncomfortable. And we pull our hand back in and we rest quietly in our warm, snug sleeping bag. And God today is grabbing us in that sleeping bag and He's saying, I want you to get going. I want you to make the pilgrimage with me. The Christian life is not sleeping in a warm, snug, cozy sleeping bag. The Christian life in the New Testament is pictured as a pilgrimage, as a journey. You are pilgrims, not at home in this world. And that means you need to get going. Now, where are you going? Internally, we should be moving towards becoming like our Savior. I want all of us to ask ourselves the question, where am I going this morning? Who am I going with? Who do I listen to for guidance? Where am I going? Every one of you are going somewhere in life. Every one of you. And every one of you are going with somebody. And every one of you are listening to others for guidance. I want the young people and the children, I want the teenager to ask themselves, where am I going? Who am I listening to? Because right now it's almost guaranteed that there's some of our young people that have been delivered from slavery to sin. They've been set free. And yet, if we were to ask, where are you going? And who are you listening to? They've started to listen to wrong voices. They've started to wander. And they're not really headed towards Christ's likeness anymore. They're really not headed towards becoming what the Bible talks about and really being a child of God and on all the character that goes with that. You adults, moms and dads, maybe you've become all wrought up and, and all covered over with the, with the trials of life. Jesus said that he was scared that the stresses and worries of life would suck away some from really following this journey. So we all need to ask ourselves, and this, a question is penetrating to me, as I look back a year of time, Am I more Christ-like today? Not by effort, not by human performance, but by responding to a relationship with God. Am I more Christ-like today than I was a year ago? And that'll give you the drift and the direction of your life. It's a very, very serious question because Paul will say that we have received this gift of deliverance. He will talk about the goal of our life in Philippians 3 needs to be that I might know Him. He just told us at the end of Philippians 2 that our citizenship is in heaven. But in Philippians 3, he goes on to say, I press towards the mark for the upward call of God and the high calling that He has called me into Christ to possess. Now, I don't think it's a given that Dave, in a given day, in a given week, in a given month, is going to be traveling the right direction. And it's very important on this journey as we're pilgrimaging together to keep in touch with one another. Don't be afraid to give one another a call to encourage each other on the journey. 
Have you ever gone through periods in your life where you felt, I'm just kind of dead spiritually. I don't really feel that alive spiritually. Anybody ever felt that way? And somebody gives you a call and says, hey, I just wanted you to know, I really care. And, you know, maybe you've just been, you know, maybe you've just been traveling and I've just missed you. But I really haven't seen you in, in the gathering of God's people. It's a much better way of putting it than church because so easily we turn it into just a religious thing. And what, it's very important to touch base with one another. I'd encourage all of you, like as our kids go away to college and are, and are there, when the Holy Spirit puts someone on, their, on your heart, give them a call. What's going on? Where are you going? What's happening? I was praying for you. I was concerned about you. I think one of the greatest needs among a family like ours and, and, and believers all over the United States is to get out of this aloneness. And I'd rather do it myself. And I don't want to offend somebody. Believers in the United States have stopped living together. We don't hold each other accountable. Now, on the other hand, you know, somebody shared with me this week just a beautiful testimony. They come to church on Sunday morning and they look around. They've got a, a really good friend. And uh, this person has often done it to them. They'll look around. If they're not here, they go back here and they call. Maybe we'll have to get a phone bank to take care of it. But they call their friend and say, hey, I was just checking on you and wanted to make sure everything was all right. In other words, there's accountability. Does that make a difference when it's 8.30 in the morning? And it's kind of cold in your sleeping bag. And you're making decisions about whether or not you're going to hear the teaching of the Word of God. Uh-huh. doesn't make a difference. It makes a difference all during the week. I would encourage you to think of your life as a pilgrimage, that you're doing it together. I would encourage every one of you to try to get together with another believer that you know, that you can relate to, that will hold you accountable for the questions. Where are you going? Who are you listening to? How's the journey going? We all need that. And it's a very penetrating question. We joined the children of Israel on a journey. Their journey was a physical journey. Our journey is a spiritual journey. But our destination is so much greater. Now, as we begin to move out on this journey, and as we begin to um, think about what's going to happen it's very important for us to get organized. If you've ever gone on a trip, if you've ever gone camping, then you know that it's important to get organized. Now, that's really not my gift. You know, I'm one of the people that come up with the idea, let's go climb the mountain. Like at a big anniversary we had for a family gathering, I came up with a bright idea, let's climb Mount Marcy. Now, if my idea is you just get your coat on. If it's, hot, if it's a little bit cold in the morning, you get not even, maybe take a canteen, maybe not. Put a Hershey bar in your pocket and take off. That's my idea of planning. But Dave Cox's dad, Dave Cox Sr., is an intricate organizer. And so I came up with a vision. Let's climb up Mount Marcy. All the guys are going to do that. But Dave Cox Sr. said, no, we're going to do it. We need to get together at such and such a time. Three days before, we need to collect such and such an equipment. We need to get all organized. We need to have kind of a buddy system. And on and on and on it went. When we got on the trail, he said, now, David, you're going to lead for a while. Then someone else is going to lead for a while. He had maps to go with us. Praise the Lord, Dave, with a long. I might still be wandering in the upper reaches of the north. Now, the book of Deuteronomy recognizes that need for administration. 
And that's what we're going to look at as we think of this journey. I think you're with me. I think you understand the way that we're developing it, putting together the New Testament and the Old Testament. But in the next part of the book of Deuteronomy, before these people take off, in fact, much of the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, all the book of Deuteronomy, is the preparation to enter the promised land. And in verse 9, Moses goes on and talks about a very serious problem that he's encountering and trying to get these people going. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. Is there anybody as you think about your interaction with fellow believers? Maybe some of you have been teaching Sunday school for the last 60 years. Never a break. No Sunday morning break. Have you ever felt, it's too heavy for me. The burden is too great. It's easy to feel there's a few that will do it. You see, we live in the day of the few who do it. And everyone else watches. Moses almost burned himself out because he tried to do it all instead of organizing and allowing others to help him. Maybe you have fallen into this same trap. The temptation is to become angry at those who just sit and watch. The answer is to invite them to join you in work, and when they do, be willing to allow them the freedom to do things a little different than you. Well. That's getting into some of our discussion for tomorrow.